uncommon sense advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. As I was preparing for this podcast uh, on reflections of on my life as a career coach, one of the things I did was to ask myself, what's the first word that comes to mind when I say career coach? The first word that came to mind was loser. Because I think about before I entered the field, you know, I always thought about it as people who were not particularly skilled, didn't want to get credentialed, and could just open up shop right away. And uh, in short, they were kind of losers. That was the visceral reaction. That's too strong. I don't, you know, fully feel that they're losers at all. I don't want to make that clear. But that was the first word that came to mind. And this is my own career. I also thought about the fact that uh, the next word that came to mind was a phrase actually, shallow cheerleader, that they really weren't very deep. They didn't have a lot of expertise in the world of work, even though they were ostensibly career counselors. Um, but they mainly, you know, were cheerleaders. Yeah, you can do it. You know, work hard. You can make it happen. Felt shallow. But now, you know, instead of just a reflexive uh, response to my 35 years now as a career counselor, coach, who the hell knows what I am, somewhere in there, um, I alternate. I go on the full range. Sometimes I feel really quite expert, and other times I feel like uh, you know an empty suit. You know, like there's so much, so much we don't know. But then I wonder whether that's just intrinsic to every field, especially those dealing with human beings, because people are so different. They can't so easily be characterized, despite all things like the Myers Briggs, which attempts to reduce people to 16 categories, but People are, you know, they're, they're not so easily defined. They're not defined just in terms of those 16 factors or, uh, uh, and they may change. You know, they're not that stable. You know, you can be one way one day and one different the next day, um, difference the next month and year, certainly. And when you're trying to choose a career, um, you're trying to look for enduring long-term uh, aspects. And those tend to be quite obvious. The person tends to know those already. They don't need a career counselor. You know, they're word people or they're people people or they, they need to be self-employed or they're hands-on fix-it types or, you know, that raised questions in terms of how valuable uh, I think career counselors are. I do want to say something about about the need that, that actually to be a good career counselor, good career coach, whatever you want to call it, career advisor, you need to know a lot. You really need to know a lot about all kinds of jobs. You can't just throw somebody in front of a computer program or the Occupational Outlook Handbook or even like a book like My Careers for Dummies, which has you know, a paragraph or two on each of these careers. There are so many subtleties and variations in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of careers that exist that you need to be able to discuss with your client. You can't just send them for an informational interview or just a Google. You, and that's fine. You definitely, that's a good thing, but you need to know a lot. Like for example, you know, know what it's really like to be a doctor. You need to understand, as I just mentioned, the ambiguities that are intrinsic in the field, in diagnosis and treatment and cost effectiveness. You need to deal with the with the various stresses, patient stresses of non-compliance, 
Uh, conversely, the patients that know it all, there's tremendous paperwork that goes on. By the way, there's tremendous paperwork that goes on being a cop. People don't realize that. They think cops are people of action. Well, unfortunately, they're often people, they have to be people, people of paperwork. So there's all these <clears throat> nuances that often don't find their way into print in a Google search or in, you know, these uh, commercially available publications that they have to be err on the side of great caution. And so I really think it's a more difficult field, and it's not just knowing careers. It's knowing the, not knowing, it's having the good intuitions to know how to motivate that particular person at that particular time. Or should you be gentle? Should you be tough? Should you let the ideas come from them? Should you suggest things? How between the eyes, how tactful? Um, how much you should you go back and talk about what the, you know, their earlier traumas and the way that informs or precludes their moving forward? Have they developed a habit of procrastination? What really caused it? Was it school that, that gave them, always gave them an extension when they were late? Or they found that because of great inflation and if they just um, waited to the last minute, let the adrenaline kick in, even though they did a last minute job, they would still get a good grade. There's just so much that it takes to be a good career counselor. And I'm not painting myself as, you know, fabulous. I, I work at all that stuff, of course. But um, it, isn't e it isn't easy. You know, I guess there are very few professions that are really easy unless they're really highly concrete. Um, but most white-collar professions are not. When I think about it, and this is not allowing myself to censor, when I think about where I may have been of greatest value, I had this show on NPR called Work with Marty Nemco for 30 years, and its hallmark was what I called workovers. There were three to five minutes, somebody would call in and I would say, well, tell me about your situation. And they would tell me, and I would then usually quite interrupt to, to make sure things were concise when I felt I knew what was going on. I would ask a bunch of follow-up questions, and then I'd play something called, very, not always, but I'd often play something called the optometry game, in which it's just a way of narrowing in. Like when you go to the optometrist to get glasses, they show you pairs of lenses, and you simply say which is better, which is worse, and eventually that narrows you into uh, what is the right prescription. And I would do that with careers. And typically, I might, start, you know, depending on what they said, I might start very wide. You know, would you rather be a hair cutter or an optometrist? Uh, or if they're what they said about the situation made it seem much more constrained, I might start narrower. But the bottom line is, they would simply tell me which they like better, and I would adjust my next pair uh, to suggest to them. Uh, based on what they said. And again, so you have to know a lot about the world of work in order to do that. No way you can do that, you know, with, with limited knowledge of the world of work. Anyway, and I got to say, I probably learned more about the world of work from writing my two dummies books, Cool Careers for Dummies and Careers for Dummies, and then when I was a contributing editor at U.S. News for Careers, created their whole channel. Uh, you know, that force of writing and researching forces you to learn a ton that you just wouldn't otherwise have the discipline. You had the structure of a book to write or that you're, you're paid by U.S. News to do it. or it, uh, uh, But anyway, um, so the optometry game. By the way, that may be a useful tool for you if you want to, you know. Nah, it's really not useful self-help because you really need to know so much about careers. Anyway, this is all about my reflections um, as a career counselor. Uh, I have um, different feelings about the profession depending upon which component. Probably the most frequent reason that people consult a career counselor is to help them choose a career. And yes, I do use the optometry game, but um, 
there, I want to talk some more about that. First of all, ethically, and I'm going to talk about ethics about each of the components of the job of, of career counseling, but I feel fine about that, certainly, because you're, you're, you're trying to find something that's a really good fit for the person, you know, that optimizes their skills, interests, values, and the amount of risk tolerance. How much uh, are they really willing to risk to become the next Oprah, or are they very conservative and you want a government job that's really stable that they're super qualified for? So we, I love that exploration process. Um, I help them, you know, both using optometry game, but also we use software or we look through the Occupational Outlook Handbook. It's the government authoritative um, description of 300 careers, or some, perhaps some of you know the sections of my my book, Careers for Dummies. You know, which has a section on word people, a section for people who like words and people. Um, hands-on people, investigative people, self-employment, entrepreneurship stuff, which is also something you got to know a lot about. That part I like. It's really fun. It's like you're going shopping, and there's no big commitment, because after you come up with one or two things, which you usually do at the end of the first session, by the end of the first session, I send them home to, yes, to then do some Google searching and reading and talk, potentially talking to people about the career. But the days of the informational interview being easily accessible are over. People are way too busy, and it's really hard to get to, to talk to somebody about their career. And more importantly, even if you get to do that, it's only one person and it's going to be a very uh, idiosyncratic uh, reaction you're going to get. Whereas Googling is going to get you a lot more, including YouTube videos, give you a much better sense about a career by, for example, searching one day in the life of a, you know, a geologist or whatever, or uh, simply geology careers. Anyway, um, so I feel great about that. There's no problem in my helping people choose a career. Now, and one, I would say 100%, yeah, 95, 100% of my clients who want that kind of help come away with a career they feel good about. Now, they don't always pull the trigger because they've got fears. They don't have the money or time to go back to school. We, we, we try to f figure out shortcuts or then come up with different career, career ideas if that doesn't work. But 100% of my clients basically feel that they, uh, we've come up with a, one or more career ideas that seem well-suited. Um, now I want to turn to something that I do have ethical questions about, which is helping people land a job. It's pretty much a zero-sum game. If I help somebody land a job, that's there's going to be somebody else who's not going to get it, who maybe you know the, the liberal side that couldn't afford a you know a hired gun career counselor. And because I am optimizing at minimum who they are, not at minimum, I'm optimizing who they are you know, highlighting the right things in the resume, having a good elevator pitch, uh, solid but honest answers to interview questions, discussing how, what to stress, stories to tell. It's a zero-sum game, and I, I don't feel great about doing that. And I frankly do turn down clients who I fe don't feel, you know, I feel good about, ch if I don't feel good about championing them. Yeah, I just don't like it. I certainly, and I've, I don't do this, but there are people who want me to write their resumes. And I just think that's, or in their cover letters or LinkedIn profiles. I feel that's about as deceptive as a parent of, a, of their kid writing their college application essays. The, um, again, I, I, I like to think cosmically, and the, the employer gets shortchanged if I end up making my client look better than he or she is, thereby some other candidate doesn't get the job. I feel bad for the, cl 
the candidate who doesn't get the job. I feel bad for the co-workers who are then perhaps saddled with a worse worker than they otherwise would have been. And I feel sad for customers and clients who are going to directly or indirectly suffer from this less qualified person getting this job. So I'm not crazy about helping people land a job, although that is what so many of my clients are most eager to do because they desperately want a job. They, you know, they almost consider choosing a career a luxury, whereas landing a job, bringing that money back in, um, that's priority. But it's not my favorite thing, and I have turned down some people for that. Now, the other c component I really like is um, two, there are two other components in career counseling. One is uh, making the most of you know your career. So I have a, a number of clients whom I help with communication skills, whether it be one-on-one -on -one to be more tactful or more direct, uh, more concise, more thorough, one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations, uh, public speaking. I feel that's a personal strength of mine, and there's certainly no ethical compromise in helping people to grow in that critical area of communication. I also try to help people with their stress management and procrastination management. And although I ask for feedback, and it's generally positive, I have questions in my mind about how much the various stress management techniques like gaining perspective or taking micro breaks or breathing or, uh, uh, you know, the big one is that take having perspective, how important is this in the long run and, you know, solving a problem and then distracting yourself from what you can't do anything about. Those are all good techniques, but I wonder, you know, all of who we are in almost every dimension, animals, plants, human beings have a strong genetic component and a significant gen uh, environmental component. And there's a piece of me that thinks that stressful people, because of their genes or their earlier environment, are having this real predisposition to stress. And all these techniques I just mentioned may not do so much to reduce that, even though they say I've been helpful. Uh, same with procrastination. There seem to be some people who just tend to procrastinate, well, most people do, procrastinate a lot. Everybody procrastinates a little. But um, there are some who just procrastinate, so it really is a career and personal life killer. And while I, I, I do think I know a fair amount about the various tools for uh, overcoming procrastination, uh, both the psychological as well as the, uh, the tactical things like uh, what I call the, the one-second task when you're overwhelmed, start with just one second, that can get you rolling, you know, whether it be to turn on the computer, open the file, whatever, or, put, or just put the, the uh, like my, I've just put my, uh, income receipts uh, right next to on my desk right next to where I can't see it so that it, so that it makes it easier for me to get started with my taxes it's a one second task and the one minute struggle is another technique I use all the time which is generally if you're gonna make progress on a roadblock it, you're gonna make that progress within a minute and but people end up sitting and staring at a blank screen and struggling and struggling and struggling for much longer and all that does is make them want to procrastinate so I Encourage people to use the one-minute struggle. Take a minute to try to solve the problem. And if you can't, then decide, could you do the project without solving it? Could you get help either with a phone call or a text or a, a, you know, whatever, or a Google search? Um, and then the third option is to come back to it uh, later or to delegate it to somebody else. Anyway, so I, I think those are good techniques for, uh, for dealing procrastination, um, but not a magic pill, so I have some ambivalence about the wisdom of that. All right, I'm going to take a little break here uh, and then finish up by talking about um, uh, some other ethical issues in career counseling. And then uh, would I do it again? Would I be a career counselor again if I was starting over? So 
It'll just be 10 or 15 seconds. Stay with me. You're listening to How to Do Life with career and personal coach, Dr. Marty Nemco. If you'd like to work with him, email him a description of your situation, mnemco at comcast.net. That's M-N-E-M-K-O at comcast.net. Marty is pleased if you choose to subscribe to this podcast. If you're not listening to this on Simplecast, just go to how-to-life.simplecast and click on listen and subscribe. Thank you for staying with me. We're um, sharing my reflections on having been a career counselor for 35 years, still doing it, loving it, uh, loving it. That's what I want to actually move to is uh, would I do it again? It's funny, viscerally, just in talking at lib here, I said I love it. Um, I do like it. I look forward to every client. I really do. Um, feels meaningful. I value work. Uh, but I do, as I've implied earlier, have some questions about its efficacy. And I wonder how much of that is my own internal worry wart self and how much of it is the field uh, that's just, there's just so, too much ambiguity um, about people and how they, what's going to work for them and not work for them and whether it will work a year from now or not. In choosing a career, you've got to take a long view. Um, I love that I work from home and I can in between clients pet my doggy. Uh, uh, it feels as you know I think you can tell I really try to keep my ethics front and center and that's so I feel like my the way I practice career counseling is unambiguously ethical that's great okay let me let me turn I was going to talk about the ethical concerns so that's a good place for me to do it now there are two things that three I mentioned earlier that I, I, I consider um, career counselors who write essays write application uh, cover letters or resumes or LinkedIn profiles to be as unethical as a uh, parent of a college-bound kid writing their kid's college application essay. It's uh, not fair to actually even the kid, you know, or the in, in this career counseling context of somebody older. It's not fair to the uh, to the person. Uh, they feel that, the, you know, they're, I'm, A, I'm selling them for what they're better than they are, and that sets them up potentially for failure at work. It also makes them feel inefficacious. Um, but it's really unfair to the other applicants who don't have a hired gun to polish them. Uh, it's more than polish. Sometimes, you know, a career counselor can really feed them pat answers to questions, or even dishonest answers or exaggerated answers, uh, and really, you know, present themselves far better than they are. I had one employer say that uh, uh, this, this employee who they hired, his best day was his job interview day. And after that, it's, you know, in the real world of getting, when he was on the job, it was, he was far worse. Um, so I certainly think there's that ethical complaint, uh, concern in, in career counseling. But there's two I haven't mentioned. There is a tendency, if you don't have enough clients, to push the client to have more sessions. So um, I am pretty assiduous in, at the end of the session, asking myself, is it really in the client's finance, you know, is it worth the money and at the time for this client to have another session? And only if I do, then I say, you know, I, I really don't use any techniques to close them and get there. You know, I say, you know, uh, I think in the next session we, we should be doing X, Y, or Z, but what do you think? And then uh, uh, if we agree that another session is appropriate, then I offer them some possible times when I'm available. Um, and the other thing is, I don't believe in packages. I, one of the first 
career counselors I met uh, was a, a guy who charged had a, a bronze, silver, gold, and platinum package. And he told me it was a great way of, uh, you know, getting the money up front and, and that the, uh, a lot of times the people who come to career counselors are procrastinators and they don't even use it. It's kind of like a gym membership. They don't use it. I found that unethical both on those grounds and the fact that it's impossible to tell up front how many sessions you need. I have my one session wonders. I have clients on, the average client sees me three, four, five, six times, something like that. But I have had, I have some clients who see me for a decade, two decades. Uh, so I'm not a fan of packages. I believe that it's the ethical thing to do is simply charge by the hour. I also, uh, I'm repulsed. I know a career counselor who charges, he doesn't charge by the hour, he charges like $75,000 a year for unlimited service. It's a pig, I just can't stand it. There's something about charging significantly over what the average person charges in that field that taints the relationship. It makes the client feel like you're in it for the money. Yeah, they may, you know, there are some fools who think that if it's expensive, it must be good. But I do think it taints it. I like, I actually charge, I would say at or slightly below what uh, other other people of my experience charge as career counselors. And that way my clients know that I'm not in it for the money. Yes, it's appropriate I'm entitled to earn a living, but I'm, that I'm not in it for the money. Okay, so now let me um, turn to would I do it again? You know, we all play old tapes, and I've said to many people over the years, you know, I think if I was starting over again, I'd, I'd be either a geneticist, because I do believe in the power of genes. I think about my two doggies, for example, that I most recently had. I've had dogs my whole life, but the most vivid is my sweet Einstein, who was hyperactive, really hyperactive, and an escape artist would race out of the house to leave as soon as he, you know, he got the doors open a crack. And now my current doggie, Hachi, who looks similar, but is completely the opposite, loves to sleep, loves to nuzzle, doesn't, and he's young, he's only two and a half. And I've parented him the same. I try to be very loving and only have minimal rules like, you know, he's got to not come and can't pee in the house. Uh, but I'm, you know, much more love than on the, on the love side than on the discipline side. And yet the dogs are completely different. I breed roses, you know. I see that they're, you know, if I treat them all the same and there's enormous differences in how vigorous, how disease-free, how beautiful the flower is, how, you know, all that stuff, you know. So viscerally, I believe in the power of genetics. And especially when I see how difficult it is to get people to change things like procrastination or intelligence. You know, if I were, you know, I, I've always thought that I would rather be a geneticist, maybe studying the biological basis of intelligence. But if I'm really honest with myself, while I'm not stupid, I don't think I'm smart enough. I took the, I was going to be pre-med and I took the first college level biology course in, for be a pre-med and I found it hard. And so I said to myself, you know, that maybe this is not me. I'm not a man, you know, I got through calculus and some statistics courses, but you know, I, you know, to be a real PhD geneticist, I don't think I quite have the brain power for that. So on the other end of the continuum, I thought, you know, maybe, you know, I found college and especially college and my PhD program, not, I'll just be gentle, not the best use of my time and money. And in retrospect, there's a piece of me 
that would have just left, you know, stopped school after high school. I love to learn, and I'm very self-motivated, but I didn't find school the best way because it's so not individualized, and there was so much that I was required to take that I didn't feel necessary, like some of those advanced statistics courses that were required, and I nor any of my fellow graduate students use that stuff. So, I, you know, conversely, so I think I was dropping out of high school. I'm not very social. I am an introvert. And so I could see, I love writing uh, and making these YouTube videos. So I could see a, a career, even if I had to live, you know, in poverty, live with my parents and, you know, whatever. Um, being a writer, uh, YouTube video maker or whatever, that kind of content creator thing in the, in the self-help space, which I like. I think it's empowering. But then there's a piece of me that thinks that I landed where I belong. You know, notwithstanding questions about efficacy, which may be some of my limitations, but something is just the difficulties of getting people to change and getting clarity on what's right for a person when we're dealing with human beings who are so variable and something as complex as a career fit. You know, one accounting job could be very different from another. You know, so you, you can't say a person is meant to be an accountant. It's and yes, you can help them try to find a you know a well-suited accounting job, but there's so much that's jello-y, that's fuzzy. And that may just be intrinsic to the field, but I think that net, I probably ended up where I needed to be. I care about work. I like working one-on-one. -on -one. I don't do well with stress, and working in my home one-on-one -on -one with people, whether it be by Skype or back before COVID in person, may be just a good fit for me. Uh, does seem to use my brain and my values. So those are my thoughts. Um, uh, reflections on 35 years as a career counselor. I'm wondering if there are any takeaways. I'm hoping that this is not just interesting, but uh, has some takeaways for you. So first is recognizing that perhaps everybody feels like they're the impo an imposter. And while you try to keep getting better, it's like living with the ambiguity that's intrinsic. What else? Yeah, that the whole field of career counseling requires a lot more skill than many of them have. So if any of you are presently or aspiring career coaches, counselors, or whatever, the responsibility is very serious. You're, you're, you're dealing with somebody's life. Do take the time to become expert, at least in the world of work. Do a lot of reading of different careers. The art of getting people to change. The emotional stability to not superimpose your values unless it's clearly something unethical, uh, not to get defensive. Focus on helping people choose a career and making the most of it, but not so much on helping people land the job because you are really in some ways uh, being unethical. As I said, you're, if you're really writing resumes, LinkedIn profiles, give, you know, you're, you're kind of like a parent writing their kid's college application and say it's unfair to the other, other students who did their own work uh, the other job applications, uh, job applicants in this case. And then in whatever field you are, think twice before uh, offering a package uh, or, or encouraging people to schedule another appointment. It's easy for me to say because I'm not poor. And I imagine if you are poor and just starting out, it's tempting to push the envelope and push people to get more clients and sell them a package. So I don't think I'm quite sanctimonious enough to say, do not do that, but think twice about it. And I am flattered if you choose to subscribe to, whether it be my YouTube channel or this, this podcast on iTunes or Spotify. And in any event, I do thank you for watching. I am Marty Nemco. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco.
For comments on the show or to consult with Dr. Marty Nemko, his email address is mnemko at comcast.net. Post-production of How to Do Life by Terry Rouse. Music by Blue Dot Session. Thanks for listening.